Good morning. Well, we are finishing up our Advent series this morning. Pastor Jason took us through a number of passages in the Gospel of John where the theme of light was mentioned, Jesus being the light of the world. And we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture today, the the last chapter in John where this theme is mentioned. I thought it might be fitting for this morning as we finish up the series. So let's turn there to John chapter 12. We're going to read from verses 20 to 36. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 20. Now among those who went up to the work to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Please join me in prayer. Father, we are indeed grateful that you have sent your son Jesus into the world as light. We pray that today you would help us to see him and to see all things by his light. For his glory and so that we will live in a way that pleases you. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, Happy New Year to you all. It's an honor to be able to stand up here and to preach God's word to you on the first day of 2023. And I trust that you've made some good New Year's resolutions, or at least that you've thought about making some. 
it's hard not to at least think about making resolutions, even if you're someone who tries very hard not to make them. It's kind of like that old catch-22, you know, failing to plan is really just planning to fail. Uh, it's it's sort, of, sort of like that. And, you know, there's the, there's the classic resolutions that people make every year to exercise more, to eat healthier, to get their finances in order, maybe to travel. Then there's some, you know, the silly ones like uh, act my age and that sort. But I thought it might be fitting for us to consider what a biblical, good, healthy New Year's resolution might be for us, to point us in that direction here this morning, whether you've made a, a resolution or not. Because, really, we make resolutions in order for life to be better. We want life to be better, and that's why we make resolutions. And I think John gives us some fodder for something of that nature this morning. But the question for us is, what if the only way for our lives to get better was for us to die? How might that change how you envision your plans for the future? In this morning's passage... We have a resolution to die for. I know it's a bit cheesy, but this is a resolution that God promises will lead to real life. But would we make it our own for the new year? That's the question for us. Well, we're going to see three things about the ultimate New Year's resolution from today's text. We're going to see what it involves, what it costs, and what it offers. So if you're following along with the, the program, there's an outline there for you with those three headings. What the ultimate New Year's resolution involves, what it costs, what it offers. And my hope is that as we consider these three aspects, we'll be moved to make this our resolution for 2023, this resolution, to see Jesus lifted up for you so that you can see everything else by his light. So to start, we're going to take a look and see a bit more closely what this resolution involves, our, our first point, what it involves. We're picking up today's passage with Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, where he knows that death awaits him. In chapter 11, John told us that the Pharisees have been making plans to put Jesus to death, and that they had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So Jesus is intentionally heading into hostile territory as he goes up to the Feast of Passover in Jerusalem here. And the verses just before this morning's text, verses 18 and 19 of chapter 12, give us two very important pieces of information. The first is that there's a crowd that has come to meet Jesus in Jerusalem. And verse 18 specifically tells us that the reason why this crowd went to meet Jesus was that they had heard that he raised a man from the dead. You may be familiar with that account. In John 11, he had raised Lazarus from the dead. A man who had been undeniably dead for four days. So the people we'll, we'll, we're going to read about this morning are not unaware of the miraculous power of Jesus. That's something for us to keep in mind. The other thing we learn from the context is in verse 19, the Pharisees are grumbling to one another about Jesus that, quote, the whole world has gone after him. End quote. And so that's exactly what we find at the beginning of our text. It seems that the Pharisees spoke truer words than they had realized. And hopefully we'll see that as we jump into our passage. Let's look at verse 20. 
Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Now, if there's one thing about Greeks, it's that they recognize their own. Just like I recognized that Stavros was Greek when I first came here, it's because I'm Greek, partly Greek at least, not quite as Greek as he is. <laughs> I could recognize that he was Greek, though. Amen. <laughs> I'm sure nobody else here could, uh, but... <laughs> it takes a Greek to recognize a Greek. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. All, but all, all jokes aside, the Greeks in today's text know something about one of Jesus' disciples in particular. They know that Philip is from Bethsaida, which is an Israelite town that had connections to Greek culture, and they recognize that his name is Greek, Philip. And so we read in verse 21, These came to Philip, these Greeks came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. These Greeks want to see Jesus. And here, their desire is instructive for any truly life-giving New Year's resolution. The desire to see Jesus. Do you wish to see Jesus this new year? There's nothing more significant you could do with a whole year of your life. And it's fitting that they have such a significant request because this is the one, of, one of the most significant moments in the history of the world. And we know it's a big moment by how Philip responds to this request. Did you notice verse 22? Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. See, in Philip's hesitancy to go to Jesus directly, he goes to Andrew first and he kind of indicates that something is going on here. John isn't merely telling us that a few Greeks are coming to Jerusalem for Passover and they want to see Jesus, but he's saying something much more significant. He's confirming the truth behind the Pharisees' complaint in verse 19 that the whole world really has gone after Jesus. The Gentiles are now coming to Jesus. This is just symbolic of the whole world non-Jews coming to see the Christ. And as one author put it, the significance of this story for us lies in the fact that we will see Jesus when we properly understand his answer to this question, to this request. Verse 23, And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, Jesus has spoken about the hour, his hour, throughout the Gospel of John. He's mentioned it at various points, chapter 2, chapter 7, chapter 8. And now this hour has come. And just a note here, in the, in the, in the Greek, the tense there is what we call the aorist, which indicates that this hour will last forever. This glory, this hour will last forever. It starts and lasts forever. So what begins at this hour and leads to Jesus' glory will never stop leading to Jesus' glory. And the thing that Jesus says next is what will bring him glory. He begins to allude to it in the next verse. Verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, what is a grain of wheat but a small, hard, narrow seed? It's rigid. It's tough. 
It's a self-contained shell that at its heart contains life. And in order for that life to come out, that hard, narrow, self-contained shell has to break away. It has to die in the language of Jesus here so that what's inside can produce life. It has to go into the earth and the shell has to come apart and then life can, can occur. And Jesus' point is clear. There is no life without death. And what that means is that we could put together all of the plans, all of the ambitions, all of the New Year's resolutions that have been made by every single person throughout all of human history, and it all amounts to a giant bag of seeds that has never borne any fruit at all. Because the kingdom of heaven is the size of a single solitary seed, just one. See, we mustn't make the mistake that, there's only, that there are many seeds in this metaphor. There is only one. Jesus is the holy seed, as we saw in our recent look at Isaiah chapter 6, a couple weeks back before the Advent series. Actually, the last text, right before the Advent series began. There's only one holy seed, only one seed that goes into the earth and dies and bears fruit. He is the vine but he has branches. And so that's why we see in the next two verses, verses 25 and 26, whoever loves his life, Jesus says, loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. See, Jesus knows that while he remains alive, he remains alone, in a sense. The Greeks can't come to him at this point. They won't see him clearly just yet. He also is saying that life for his people will only be possible through his death, but that our life will involve following him to his death. So our New Year's resolution should involve that as well. The way to live is to hate your life. And while much could be said about this, perhaps we can use the context here as just the simplest application for us so that we can keep moving through the text. We have people coming to see Jesus who neither Philip nor Andrew have been among for very long. These are non-Jews coming to see Jesus. And what that means for us is as we follow Jesus to our own grave, Maybe we're going to encounter people that we're not comfortable around who also need to see Jesus. Maybe people that we don't naturally like that also need to see Jesus. And we should be aware of that. Following Jesus to his death may mean opening our mouths to share the good news with people that we otherwise wouldn't want to share with. Jesus' means of blessing people is through death. And if we're to see him, ours must be too. We must expect death. Jesus' death is for the purpose of bringing others, even the Gentiles, in. It's not only for that, but it is for that. So we shouldn't expect anything less for ourselves. If the cross is where Jesus went to bear fruit, 
then we ought to expect to go to the cross of welcoming others in to see him. That's exactly what he's going to counsel us to do in our next section of text in a slightly more focused way. So we're going to consider now point two, what the ultimate New Year's resolution costs. Verse 27, Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. It's somewhat of an odd transition there between verses 26 and 27, and it's appropriate because Jesus' soul is troubled by what is coming upon him. His hour is upon him, an hour of suffering and death that we can't quite imagine. And what is Jesus' principal concern here? Why is he willing to go through this agony and terror that's before him? He tells us in the next verse, verse 28, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Now an interesting note here, the the word for name could be understood as the word for revelation. So when Jesus speaks of glorifying God's name, he's speaking of God, he's requesting that God would glorify the revelation that God has made to people in himself, in Jesus. So he's asking the Father to glorify his name by glorifying Jesus. And the Father has glorified Jesus already at this point. At his baptism, there was an audible voice. At the transfiguration as well, for those disciples who were with him, John being one of them, the author of the passage. Through his countless miracles, through his influence, through his authority over nature, over sickness, over people's desires even, he says, follow me, and they leave everything and follow him. That's part of the glory that God has revealed for his son up until this moment. But the father says, I will glorify my name again. But notice first how the crowd hears the father's voice. Verse 29, the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. See, the crowd completely misses it. God has just spoken in the presence of people, and they've heard something. It was an audible word from God, and they didn't hear it correctly. God's word of confirmation to Jesus is misheard by the people because they don't see what it has to do with God's glory, and they don't see what it has to do with them either. Not only do they not understand the message, they don't even hear it as audible words because they're completely deaf to the two things that Jesus is about to do. This voice, Jesus says, has come for their sake, not Jesus's. And what this means for us 
is that the ultimate New Year's resolution costs us something. It costs us our pride. Because it is as Jesus desires to glorify the Father that the Father audibly affirms the Son for our sake. For your sake, Jesus said to the crowd. It is for our sake that Jesus goes to the cross. And we, miss, we tend to mishear this clear word of God and explain away what, what he is saying to us about his son when we're focused on ourselves. You see, verse 30 is giving us a picture here. Until we see Jesus as the son of God, uplifted for our sake, we'll only hear the word of God as noise. You'll either dismiss what the Bible says outrightly and seek to rationalize the word of God as though it were just nature, just thunder, as the crowd says, some in the crowd say, or you'll hear it as, as merely wise counsel for how to live a more religious or maybe angelic spiritual life. But in neither case will you hear the Bible clearly saying that you are a sinner and that you deserve God's judgment. That's exactly what the Bible teaches. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus teaches in his next words. Verses 31 and 32. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people. To myself. Notice how verses 31 and 32 belong together. They're, conjoined, they're joined there by the word and. It is precisely as Jesus is lifted up that the world is judged. See, unless you understand that God glorifies Jesus by lifting him up from the earth, you'll never really understand what Jesus meant in his metaphor from earlier. Back in verse 24. Notice the deliberate contrast between how Jesus uses the term earth there and here in the verse before us. In verse 24, he says that a grain of wheat must fall into the earth and die to bear fruit. Here in verse 32, he says that the Son of Man must be lifted up from the earth to draw all people to himself. This is because the way that Jesus produces fruit is by going to the cross. And the cross is Jesus' moment of glory, where he is lifted up from the earth, where he will draw all people to himself. Now, just a brief note, that word all people, it doesn't mean that every single person will come to believe in Jesus. John uses this phrase, all people, all the world, to mean people from all over the world. Not, not every person without exception, but every person without distinction. People from every class, every nation, but not every person. So Jesus is going to be glorified by being raised up on the cross, doing what nobody else could do. He is saving a people for himself, for his Father. Something that nobody else could ever do. See, what God offers 
is his uplifted son for the world. But what will a New Year's resolution to see him uplifted, what will that offer us? That's what God offers us, his son. But what will seeing him offer us? What will it do for our lives? That's where we come to our last consideration here. What this New Year's resolution to see Jesus lifted up for you, what it offers. Now, the crowd has heard the words of the Father, and they've heard the words of Jesus, and now John makes things even clearer for the reader. He tells us in verse 33 that Jesus spoke about being lifted up in order to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Now, I think we already knew that, but John is making it abundantly clear, and it's for a purpose here. It's to show the contrast with what the crowd then says in the next verse. Verse 34 and verse 35. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Notice, this is, this is just so ironic. The crowd couldn't hear the Father's voice as he was audibly glorifying Jesus in verse 29. They couldn't hear the Father correctly. But now in verse 34, they claim that they can hear the law. We have heard from the law that it says that the Christ remains forever. It's quite, a, quite an imbalance there. Notice further, though, what they're really asking in light of this supposed confusion that they have. Who is this son of man? That's, their real, that's the question that they're really driving at. That's their second question. Who is this son of man? The crowd has already heard that Jesus, remember, Jesus brought back a man from the dead who had been in the tomb for four days. That overrode all suspicion. There used to be this idea, uh, I, I guess that it had been proven true at various points throughout history, that sometimes they would bury people too early because they didn't have modern medicine and things of that sort back then. And so they would bury people too early. And then sometimes they would find that the person was still alive. Must have been quite startling uh, to, to hear somebody calling out from a tomb. But up until the third day, that had been the, I guess, the, maybe the superstition, or maybe it had actually happened. But Jesus brought Lazarus back from the dead on the fourth day. And in fact, his sister said, he's, he's already begun to stink. His body has already been decomposing. So there's no question that this crowd has heard that this Jesus, at the very least, is, should be considered the Son of Man. Whether or not they believe in him is a different matter, but they should at least understand that the Son of Man, in this case, is Jesus. It's an undeniable miracle, but that's not enough for them. It's as if they're telling Jesus that the only way, this is interesting, the only way that they can know for sure that it's he who is the Christ is if he actually remains with them forever. That's the proof they're looking for. Did you notice that? We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. 
So how's Jesus supposed to prove to these people that he's the Christ? The miracle of raising Lazarus wasn't good enough. It must mean that they want him forever to be their king in the, on the spot in the way that they would have him to be and that they have to live forever with him. But they're missing what Jesus has come to do. They don't understand that they need him to be uplifted for their sake. A thousand years wouldn't be enough time to prove to them that he is the son of man. They won't be convinced unless he remains forever as is in the way that they expect him to be. And folks, this is a picture of what it looks like to be in darkness. It's a willful denial of who Jesus is and what he alone can do. And sometimes it's subtle. Sometimes it simply involves thinking that Jesus has come to make our lives better as they currently are. The danger in making a New Year's resolution and not seeing Jesus uplifted for you is exactly that. It's in thinking that Jesus has come to affirm us in our lives as they are right now rather than leading us to the cross for the purpose of fruit being born in our lives. Eternal life. That's what we begin to see most clearly in these last two verses. It's entirely fitting that Jesus answers the crowd as he does in verses 35 and 36. Let's look at those two verses here. So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. You see, folks, even in the face of their stubborn hard-heartedness, Jesus offers the crowd the opportunity to repent, to change their thinking about what makes for life. In fact, Jesus offers something that no one else can, something that no amount of self-help, no amount of Oprah or Dr. Phil ever could offer. He offers us a way out of darkness. We need to get out of darkness. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, understand that God is offering you the chance to get out of darkness right now. Hear these words of Christ. The light is among you a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. There's going to come a time when it's too late to get out of darkness. Have you ever been lost in the woods? It's terrifying. Even when I was a kid, I thought I was lost in the woods, and it was just my, my friend's backyard, and we were actually fine, but it was terrifying. And if you have been lost in the woods, you know that the panic sets in when you realize you're running out of daylight. So if you're here and you don't know Jesus, then while you're hearing this word from him, turn to him and receive sight. You will not always have this opportunity. Notice the end of verse 36. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. When Jesus finishes speaking, he hides himself. Where Jesus' words are not, Jesus' light is not. 
So to my non-Christian friends here today, you're hearing Jesus' words right now. But know that when you stop hearing Jesus' words, you stop seeing Jesus' light. And if you don't respond while the opportunity is available, the darkness will overtake you. The word there for overtake is catalepsy, from which we get our word for catatonia, the catatonic state, a seizing up of the person. Don't be seized by the darkness. And if you're here this morning and you do believe in Jesus, then you've become a son of light. But if you're here this morning and you do believe in Jesus and you find yourself especially tempted by the darkness as of late, then hear Jesus' words, John's words, very carefully. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That's how we have fellowship. That's how we lay down our lives. That's how we welcome others in. We look to Jesus, the uplifted Jesus, dying on the cross for our sins. Doing for us what we can't do for ourselves. We can't rid ourselves of our sin. We can't rid ourselves of our selfishness. We need a miracle. And Jesus dying on the cross is that miracle. Because in his death, he produces fruit. He gives sight. So Christian, get out of darkness. You're putting yourself in harm's way. The light... It is the light that keeps you from corruption. The darkness will destroy your sight. Perhaps you'll recognize the name Lewis Braille. Many know of the alphabet and the system of reading and writing named for him, Braille, which he invented. Few people know that Lewis Braille was himself blind when he invented the Braille alphabet, and even fewer people are familiar with the account of how Lewis Braille became blind. He was born with perfect vision, but when he was a kid, he had an accident in which I believe he was playing with a toy and he pulled on it, and, or a knife or something, and it poked him in the eye. I don't remember the exact detail. He was poked in the eye with a, with a sharp piece of metal, and it led to an injury, obviously, and an infection. And the doctors, again, because of primitive technology and medicine, they thought that the way to have his eye heal would be for him to cover it up and to be in the darkness, that that would somehow keep him from having the sun deteriorate his eye even more. But what it actually led to was further infection, and it transferred over to his other eye, and he became blind in both eyes permanently. If he had been in the sunlight the light would have very likely killed the infection or at least helped to kill the infection. But because he was in the darkness, he ended up blind. Brothers and sisters, don't put yourself in harm's way. Don't live in pride. Don't live in darkness. Step into the light and let the sun's rays kill the disease that leads to blindness. 
Hear John word, John's words further in 1 John. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So let's be clear here. The light of Jesus is an offer of grace. The cross of Jesus is God tearing into the darkness of this world and flooding our bacteria-infested hearts with his life-giving light. That's what the cross is. That's what Jesus is doing on the cross. He's giving us the grace and the freedom to admit our sins, to admit them even to one another as is appropriate. James tells us to confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. This is an opportunity from Jesus to be reminded that in the new year, that would be a good thing for us to do. But let's also be reminded that Jesus is the light. We are not the light. We become sons of light as we believe in him, as the text says. But we are not the light. You may have heard of the analogy that the light of Jesus is like the light of the sun and the light of his people is like the light of the moon. It's, it's a helpful analogy, but only inasmuch as we don't forget that the moonlight is actually sunlight. Right? The moon has no light in and of itself. The moon simply reflects back the light of the sun. And that's how we're able to see at nighttime. And that's like us. We have no light in ourselves. We become sons of light when we believe in Jesus, when his Holy Spirit comes into us, when he makes us reflect God's glory. And here's how we reflect God's glory. Just like the moon is facing the sun in order to have us receive light, and only when the moon, we, we see the light of the sun on the moon as it's facing the sun in that way, that's when we see light so we will only be able to reflect God's light as we are looking at the uplifted Jesus. Keep your eyes on him in this new year. If you stumble, keep your eyes on Jesus. He died for the Father's glory, and the Father is glorified when people are saved by Jesus, when they turn to him, when they look at him, when they behold him uplifted for them. The cross is the glory of Jesus, but the glory of Jesus is also the resurrection of Jesus. That's why he's lifted up. It's a symbol, two for one. He's lifted up in crucifixion, and he's lifted up as a picture of his resurrection from the dead. That's what will produce fruit in our lives. So let's look to him. Brothers and sisters, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. While we have the light, let us believe in the light, and let us walk in the light. It's the perfect day to, the first of the year. So let's resolve this year to see Jesus, the uplifted Jesus for us, and thereby see everything else clearly in his light. It's Sunday morning. Let's walk in the sun and let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this word that Jesus has given to us, that John has given to us from you, O Lord. Thank you that Jesus came to give light to this world. Thank you that you don't want people to live in darkness. The darkness tells us that you do, but in fact you don't. 
And on the cross, Jesus tore through the darkness and flooded the world with light. But the light is among us a little while longer. Please, Lord, help those who don't know your son now to turn to him. Would you call them? Would you draw them? Anyone here who doesn't know you, would you draw them by the light of Jesus Christ? And for those of us who do know your son, may we not forget this year. May we not look away from the resolution to look at him uplifted for our sake. We need him. May we not forget that. And may you get glory this year as we see Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.